Listener Production. This is From Zero, conversations with business founders. I'm Adam Schwab, founder of LuxuryEscapes.com, financial journalist, author, and angel investor. With my best mate from school, we co-founded Luxury Escapes, and the business has grown to turn over almost a billion dollars annually. People ask me all the time how we started the business. And now I want to turn the tables. In this episode, I speak to Ivan Lim, founder of online furniture juggernaut, Rosa. Ivan Lim was born in Manchester to Bruneian parents. His mum was a teacher who nurtured Ivan with an artistic touch. Despite his upbringing being very creative, life was still very structured. When he was 13, Ivan left home for boarding school in Singapore and took on the challenge of life on his own. I think I learned a lot about myself. I learned a lot to be to figure out how to work through really tough situations. And, you know, when you didn't necessarily have parents to kind of help you decompress things at the end of the day, and you're just kind of going back and going, well, all of this happened, what do I do? And you have the pressure of exams and pressure of achieving. You learn to be resourceful. You learn to be pretty resilient. You know, you learn to just keep going, right? So I think a lot of grit um, was kind of built through that time in Singapore. My childhood, I think, um, so my my biological mom, uh, very, very close to her. She was uh, a real sort of, um, she was a teacher. Um, she, um, you know, spent a lot of time with us when we were young, helping us to kind of understand our feelings, articulate ourselves, be really curious uh, be loving, caring people. And I think, you know, we took a lot of that sort of, um, you know, behavioral traits from our mom. She was fiercely independent. She was a really strong achiever. Uh, she even tutored like some of the royal family in Brunei. Like she had, she actually like the, the princesses. <laughs> and uh, we, we used to, we used to get recipes from the palace. It'd be like, oh, this is how they make this thing. And we tried it out. So really, really interesting. And, and we got a lot of our behavioral traits. Unfortunately, I lost my mother to cancer when I was about 14. Uh, and again, you know, I was in Singapore, I was in boarding school, and that really, again, forced me to have to grow up because she was my hero and my idol. Um, and, you know, you take those sorts of learnings. And then my stepmother, uh, who came into our life, you know, shortly after, she was very much a business person, right? And, um, you know, that was where, you know, we spent those sort of dinners and, and time together in, our, in my formative teenage years, kind of shifting to this world where, it wasn't only just about, hey, how was drama class or soccer practice? It was like, well, who's got a business idea to, you know, get $100,000 so you can go buy property, right? <laughs> and, you know, it was a very, it, I almost had the benefit of like two sort of distinct chapters in my life um, and kind of bringing the best of both of those things. And and then you just add in the fact that, you know, I was just forced to be very independent from a young age. Uh, you know, you, you take what you need to and then keep moving. Ivan finished school in Singapore and ended up at Melbourne Uni, where he studied an arts degree. In the US, lots of college kids do what's called a liberal arts degree and then become an entrepreneur. But in Australia, it's a lot less common. After finishing his degree, Ivan used his diverse set of skills to found his first business, a startup called OzHut. I think OzHut was a really interesting thing. You know, it was... Um it was started by a university friend of mine. He had started, you know, building the business, selling on eBay, 
Uh, and back then, you know, really the e-commerce space was eBay. The, the strategy for Oshot was very much following the Wayfair model before Wayfair was Wayfair. Um, it was like all this set of niche websites selling all sorts of products. And so, you know, we basically were the number one retailer for telescopes in Australia online, the number one retailer of binoculars, of Swiss Army knives, breathalyzers, uh, you know, baby prams. Like it was just specialized SEO and, you know, a customer service specifically for that. And you would kind of build shared infrastructure to kind of support all those brands and get the leverage that way. And so it definitely was very much the early days of e-commerce in Australia where people were still transacting through PayPal because they were worried that they would get scammed. Uh, they wanted to buy products that they knew. And so trusted brands were really a big thing. Uh, and, you know, it was still, you know, back then it was, it was very basic sort of like just trying to get the product to the customer. But even back then eBay, like selling brand new products was like a big thing, right? And it was just like, wow, you're selling brand new product. Um, and eventually, you know, it started to pick up pace and we started, you know, being at that very early stage of starting to build dedicated sites that people will kind of go to outside of these marketplaces and trying to build brands in and of themselves. And definitely the, the catch of the day guys, the Kogan guys, you know, all building their own sort of destination places. And, you know, I think it was, it was an exciting time. You know, it was this sort of first wave of taking products that you would otherwise find offline and moving it online. Obviously we've evolved from there into, you know, private label brands and all sorts of other places, but it was a, it was a really interesting time where you spend as much time trying to negotiate with suppliers as you were trying to sell product online because you'd have to convince people to kind of go, you know what? Supply this product to us even if you've got a small little retailer who happens to be, you know, in 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 Victoria market who's selling, you know, your product, but we're selling all across Melbourne, but look, we're probably the bigger growth opportunity and and they'd you know, feel nervous about that, right? But I think it was it was a really great opportunity for us, for me at least, to kind of learn about the guts of a business and the ins and outs, and and um, you know, it was, it was exciting back then. Yeah, your first sort of I could call it big role was you worked at a business called Elto, uh, which I think was Blackbird backed potentially. Um, I think one of Blackbird's very first investments, and I think it eventually sold to, to GoDaddy, the, the dot com, the domain name giant out of the US. Uh, and you were sort of running marketing there, which I imagine was was pretty much all digital marketing. I can't imagine you were doing many TVCs or, or billboards. So I'm assuming it was mostly what we call SEM, so search engine marketing or SEO, search engine optimization, which is kind of, the, in a way, the dark arts of the internet. But there's no uni course for this stuff. How did you sort of learn it? And did you go into that role knowing the basics or did you sort of all sort of pick it up on the on the job? I think learning has just changed. I think, you know, there's, there's a lot of very practical sort of knowledge and learning for, you know, particular sort of industries or professions that don't exist in typical professionalized educational institutions, right? Whether it be university, mostly because the world is so dynamic and moves so quickly. Um, as, as you say, the dark arts of the internet were things that we uh, spent a lot of time in. And so that was a lot of testing, um, a lot of you know, reading a lot of forums and blogs and watching videos uh, back then. And, and there was a real sense of the early days of internet commerce that was happening. And we would look to the US, we would go for conferences in the US, um, look at, you know, what they were doing and knowing that it was only a matter of time that that would come to the Australian search engine uh, landscape. And so, 
you know, it was it was partly a case of getting inspiration from others, but also a case of, you know, dabbling ourselves. And, you know, back then, I think the, the draw card for us was we are in a position where we are willing to test and learn faster than any of our competitors were. And we banked on the fact that we would, you know, make more rapid progress through iteration than anybody else would. And we'd get to the answer faster, right? And so that sort of focus on, being maniacally, you know, uh, iterative in how we did things was, you know, a, a really interesting sort of uh, of way of of growing. Um, I'd actually say, like, you know, even with Elto, you know, while those elements were there for the business, I think it was also a really interesting place where, you know, I think even partnerships and channel channel growth was actually a really big part. I mean, during that time, you know, I I remember talking to Ned and PJ, the founders, and it was just like, how are we going to get from zero to hundred? as fast as possible. And sure, we can kind of like get some incremental growth through these things, but how do we really, you know, sell to other people who are going to give us customers, right? And so, you know, we worked really closely with like uh, theme builders, you know, people who sold themes for Shopify or WordPress, you know, sometimes you want it all out of the package, you you pay us a flat fee and you get a theme that that gets you up and going really quickly. But a lot of these guys used to get a lot of requests from people who bought it, right? And they'll be like, hey, want to customize this website, right? And they wouldn't be interested in customizing it because they just want to sell more themes. So we actually, I remember that the pitch that, that I was sending out to all these theme builders were, hey, do you want to make money off customer service? Why don't you send them our way, right? And so, you know, that ended up becoming a really big source of growth for us uh, because it was free um, leads and we were helping out these theme builders, right? And so that was a really good way for us to grow. I think while you're working at, at Elto and I've got this timeline, right, you... You started a side hustle, which back then wasn't as common as it is now, which, which is pretty common, uh, which was a business called Vinspy, which is a, a tailoring, sort of online custom tailoring business, a bit like, I'm assuming a bit like Institute, which has been a great success story. Uh, so I think you had the business for a few years. What was that? Fa- I think mean, it was probably your first real founder experience. And what was, what was that experience like compared to working with Ned at, at a sort of venture back startup as an employee? Um, it was, you know, I think after being at Oz Hard, I caught, I caught the bug of going, you know what, I could, and, you know, looking back, this was the early days of like starting to do private label, even though I had no idea private label building your own brand, that was what I was doing. I was just kind of like, well, this is tailoring, like, you know, this is a way that you can make money. Um, and, and back then it wasn't like we're in startups. We're just like, we're just doing online businesses. And so, you know, it became a really, it, it was certainly a real education of, you know, I was out flying to China, Thailand, Vietnam, walking through the streets, meeting suppliers, selling the vision, doing the whole thing. And it was it was always referring to the business as the royal we. It's like, we will do this. And I was like, well, it's just really me. Uh, you know, we were, we were, and, and, then, and then coming back, building the side, doing marketing. Um, and, you know, we actually went into the first um, startup accelerator. Here I go again, I said we. Uh, I ended up in the startup accelerator in Melbourne called AngelQ. Um, and that's a real throwback. You know, that was back in the days when StartMate, I think had done one cohort. Um, and AngelQ had also done one or two. And um, that was what really plugged me into Inspire9, which was the co-working space in Richmond. Nathan Sampimon, who ran Inspire9, was also one of the founders of AngelQ. And so we all had a space there. And that almost kind of, you know, became a sort of refuge for all these sort of startup uh, hopefuls. I mean, even back in the day, you know, the culture am guys were actually in one corner. I didn't know them very 
well, but they were kind of over there. And you kind of look back, you know, and you see all these great sort of businesses, Rome to Rio, Mike and, and Bernie were out of there as well. And, you know, startup Victoria, which is what we know now as like the largest independent founder community in Australia, was just like a small meetup group on a Wednesday night where there were eight people and they bought like two boxes of pizza and they would like hang out in the sofa behind my desk, right? And it was, you know, I learned a lot of things from doing Vinspy. I learned that I'm not the type to be a solo entrepreneur. Um, you know, I think I really value team and being a solo founder is like trying to do things on hard mode. I think it's really challenging. Um, and I really learned the value of building a bigger vision, right? I think I went in there kind of going, hey, you know, I'll play around this. This sounds like a, like a, a nice sort of business, but you know, when asked around what are we really trying to build and how does this inform our future strategy, I think it was really difficult for me to articulate that. And, and actually one of the turning points was when I actually caught up with Ned because he worked in the same co-working space. He ran an agency. And at the time, they had gotten some early seed funding for Elto. And I was looking for some career advice. I was just kind of like, Ned, don't really know what I'm doing. Like, and he asked, like, Ivan, what do you want to be doing in five or six years' time? And do you think it's going to be Vinspeak? And it was a great question. I said, let me come back to you. And so we, I, I spent a week thinking about it and we caught up uh, for coffee. And I said, I don't think so. And he was like, well, you know, Ivan, we're hiring for a, st- a founder's apprentice. And, you know, Ned had this whole concept of bringing in somebody as an apprentice to help grow, um, you know, learn the straps of, of building a startup. And he was like, why don't you come join us? And so that was kind of like the start. And then obviously I grew into a growth role, headed up growth there. But that was uh, the, the natural sort of stepping stone uh, alongside my own journey. How did the business go? Uh, you, you ran it for, for at least a few years. Nice business, um, you know, profitable, cash flow positive. But I think, you know, I, I reached a place where I could have raised a little bit of seed funding uh, to kind of take it to the next stage. And I had always found that business interesting because I was like, oh, maybe there's a bit of a data play here where you're capturing all these men's body measurements. You can then kind of sell all these other products. Then it became a case of like, how are you going to collect all of this data um, on men's sizing, right? And so, I mean, one was when I asked myself that, it's like, are you really passionate about that? <sighs> Not really. Uh, and two is it's a lot of work. And, you know, once you take other people's money, you know, you want to be good stewards of that, right? You want to honor the, the trust that they're making you. And I ultimately didn't feel like I had the passion or desire to kind of take it further. So it ended up being a nice side business. And then... After a period of time, I went, you know, I, I think I'm kind of doing this more just to kind of keep it going rather than, you know, really being passionate about it. And so I just decided to sunset it and kind of go, you know what, I'm, I'm going to spend my time on, on other areas. Ivan now had experience founding, operating and running his own startup and was ready to take the next step into something bigger. And on the other side of Melbourne, three university students named David Way, Richard Lee and Tim Wu were in a very similar position. In 2011, the trio had just sold their business, Crowdmass, to US-based giant Groupon. Not long after, Ivan and Dave were chatting at a conference, and Dave, who had recently moved, was lamenting to him about how hard it was to buy furniture online. He said to me, well, you know, I know this guy called Richard, uh, who is one of the biggest suppliers of physical goods to Groupon. Uh, and, you know, I've known him for quite a while. Why don't we all just kind of catch up? And I'd kind of heard of Richard, but I'd never known him particularly well. And we all kind of came together and 
what kind of hit it off? You know, we, we thought, oh, this is really interesting. And, and one thing kind of led to the other where we started experimenting playing. And I honestly thought, you know, maybe this could be a nice side project and it quickly grew into something much, much bigger. This was the fascinating thing about furniture for us, right? It was like from the very early days for us, it wasn't just about, hey, let's just sell a whole lot of sofas. It was around how do we take a really high friction, high cognitive load process of buying furniture online or furniture anywhere and make it a lot simpler, right? And, and we believe that if you use technology and if you use great operational vertical integration, you could do that. And we realized that delivery was probably one of the hardest things that was happening in furniture because couriers didn't care. They were like point A, point B, invoice process, don't care about the experience. And that was the genesis of us, you know, as we have now is actually running our own sort of delivery network of trucks to go and deliver products to customers and have them completely aligned with delivering a great experience. And so we eventually learned how to kind of unload containers, warehouse them. And then delivery became a really challenging thing because like you said, you know, t-shirts is simple because it's a really well-established parcel network. But in Australia, delivering a sofa across the country is really, really challenging. And nobody wanted to take our sofas in the early days because it was too hard. And so what we would have to do is like, we would get the, the courier company, they'd be sending a truck driver and we knew that they would not be happy if they saw 10 unpalleted sofas having to go onto their, their truck. So the strategy was, Ivan, you go talk to the truck driver. I would buy a pack of smokes and I would go and chit chat to the driver and distract him, ask him how his day was. And then Richard and, and David and the rest of the team was basically like, load that truck as fast as possible. So he doesn't know. So he'll get to the truck and it's all there. And it was just like, that was a strategy in the early days. This was a classic case of like, well, um, ignorance is bliss. And so you just kind of assume, okay, cool. We'll probably be able to figure it out. I think, I think back about the days, I mean, some of the, some of the things that used to happen. I remember when that first container of stock uh, came in. So, you know, we thought, we thought, great. You know, we knew how to sell the product, right? I remember um, the day that we sold our first product. We had been, we were on a Shopify store the first time around. We're like, let's just get going. We had uh, been testing and I used to get all these notifications for test orders um, from, you know, Richard's put in a test order. I was like, okay, cool, we've done test. And I remember there was one day, it was Valentine's Day um, in 2014 and, uh, and I saw a notification come through and I just thought, oh, Richard, stop testing. And I realized that somebody had paid us $3,000 uh, in Perth, my two sofas. And I remember calling Richard and just going, oh my gosh, we've actually sold something. And then it became, okay, we now actually have to deliver this thing. Uh, and, you know, we were expecting the container to come into the country. Richard, obviously, with his background of sourcing product was, you know, he was very adept at, at sourcing product. So it was, it was coming, but both of us had never unloaded a container before in our life. And I remember they were, we were sitting in the office and Richard on a Friday said, hey, the containers arrive. I found some space in a friend's, um, you know, warehouse. Uh, let's go and unload it. And we were very blasé about it. We were just like, oh, great. You know, it's going to be two hours. Fantastic. I was like, cool. I've got a, I've got a barbecue to go to in the afternoon. So how about we, we meet up at 10 o'clock uh, at your place. Let's drive across to Moorabbin and, uh, you know, we'll be done in two, three hours. Uh, on that day, um, you know, Richard, I, I meet Richard and Richard's like, oh, I'm a bit hungry. How about we go get some brunch first before we go? So we get brunch and then we're already starting late at like one o'clock. And, we didn't even know how to open the container. When we opened the container, it was just floor to ceiling of sofas. And it ended up taking us eight hours to unload it. We didn't have pallets. We didn't know how to do anything. I remember at 7 p.m., my friends called me and said, where are you? And I was still sitting in that warehouse going, you won't believe this, but I'm unloading sofas. When you started the business, 
what was the competitive advantage you, you thought you'd be able to build? And I just think even back then you had, obviously Ikea was very well established in Australia and you had the sort of cheaper businesses like Fantastic Furniture and then you had the higher end sort of Nick Scarly and Space and all these And it was a pretty well established sector and still is and, and obviously and likes of freedom and these businesses do fairly well. What do you think you guys could disrupt in the furniture business that wasn't being done? When I went through the furniture buying process myself and I got my own place and, you know, my, the, the, what, what happened was my, my stepmom, because she's actually a property development and interior designer, she didn't let me go to Ikea. She forced me down Church Street and go down to Coco Republic and, and all the other sorts of brands. And, you know, I, I thought it'd be one weekend, it was four weekends and it was just this long process of multiple showrooms and salespeople. And I, I was getting fatigued. And the two big problems we saw was one, don't want the same Ikea sofa that your friends have. Don't want to spend $15,000 on sofa. There is this gap of beautiful, accessible designs. And if you thought direct to consumer e-commerce, we could solve part of that. And that was one part of the proposition, right? It's like, how do we bring beautiful product that is at an accessible price point and you're able to deliver that in a really cost-effective go-to-market sort of strategy without us having to go set up a huge amount of capital to go build like showrooms, et cetera. So that, that was one part of the proposition. The actually the second problem, which was more profound and even more interesting for us actually was actually realizing that buying furniture is a very high friction process, right? Like, is this the right style? You, you typically want advice. Is this the right sizing? How's this going to fit my interior? How's it going to be delivered? When is it coming? You know, it's usually long lead times. You're giving a fair bit of money. When is it going to arrive? You always have to call them up and they're like, which invoice number? Who's the salesperson? So really opaque. And we thought, you know, if we could bring the same level of innovation around a seamless product experience that, you know, the likes of Amazon were delivering for all of our products, um, you know, washing detergent or Zappos was bringing for shoes. So why couldn't we do this for sofa? So I think we took both those things as competitive advantages in the early days, which was to go, okay, let's deliver a beautiful product to a customer that's looking for a, a fair value accessible price, but let's deliver that in a digitally native uh, way where customers don't have information asymmetry, where it's like, don't have all the information in front of me. They get responsive service because they can chat with us, call us, um, email us, and we'd be hyper responsive back to them. And once they purchase, we can give them maximum transparency on where their order is and allow for that real sort of seamlessness that happens when you purchase all these other products. And I think that was like, the really early days of what we tried to give to customers, I think we responded to that because, you know, I think a lot of consumers were looking for a fresh take on how to do furniture, right? And the ability to have better value, but have a really customer-centric sort of approach and also a platform digitally to, to deliver that. There's lots of stuff you guys do in-house and in-house really well. So I think you design your products, uh, obviously you market, you, you market the site, uh, and and you you have your own delivery infrastructure to an extent now anyway, but you but I presume you don't manufacture anything yourself and that's all contracted out. How do you decide what you guys do yourselves versus what you rely on third parties to do? I think a big part of how we prioritize is it always comes back down to what is core for delivering our value proposition to the customer. You know, we were very passionate about being able to design the pieces and have control over the design of the pieces. Why? Because we knew that that is a big part of us being able to rapidly iterate on our product life cycles and launch a product faster than most of our competitors would. And 
leverage the insights that we have from customers to get a product out that we know that they would like. And so that was a really core part of us going, we need to be able to control that process because it's a big part of us meeting the needs aesthetically and functionally for the customer. Um, so, you know, those sorts of decisions made a lot of sense. I think similarly, you know, when we thought about fulfillment of delivery, we went, well, what's the core part of the experience for a customer? It's actually like the fulfillment of that sofa. And it's not just about dropping it in the front yard. It's actually bringing it in, setting it up, putting it in a way that um, the stylists have actually you know, specified with that customer. And so, you know, I think we broadly work through a framework of what is our mission? Our mission is to make it simple to create a home you love. Our mission isn't sell a thousand dining chairs or sell a million dining chairs or be the biggest retailer of dining chairs. Our, our, our mission is to make it simple to create a home you love. And if it is an operational, um, you know, objective or a technological objective that delivers to that mission, then that's something that we feel that if we can add strategic value into, we would go and do that. There are obviously parts of the business where it doesn't make as much sense to do that. So for example, like you said, manufacturing itself. Um, you know, we haven't taken the step to go and do that mostly because we think, look, I don't think we need to create the iPhones of, uh, of, of, a, of a sofa, for example, create something that you haven't seen before. So that's not necessarily where we need to play. We should play in the parts where customers value us the most and, and it meets their need. Not long after you founded the business, I think it was about 18 months later, you guys raised a $2 million Series A, you could always call it a seed round, but a Series A round, which was a really impressive number. Uh, especially for a business that's a really complex e-commerce business that, that you're building, how how hard was it to, to raise that money, and and how did you was it the three of you pitching together? Did you do most of the work? Like, what, what, how did how did the round play out? The round really played out in like what what is typically known, and Mark Suster, who's who's a, who's a VC out in the states, calls it you know lines, not dots. Investors invest in lines, not dots, and, and that really speaks to following a journey rather than seeing it at a point in time and building a relationship with investors so they can see the progress. So, you know, we had gone through, the University of Melbourne runs an accelerator program for alumni, and we had gone through that program. We're part of the Melbourne Accelerator Program. And that was in 2015. When we're going through that program, we were thinking about doing a round. I think fortunately, through a combination of me, David, and Richard, we knew quite a few of the young, early VCs at the time. And so we were going around telling the story. And I think we were at the very early stages of the whole digitally native vertical brands, direct-to-consumer revolution was happening. We had Bonobos over in the States. You had Glossier. You had a number of you know brands really starting to grow. And so it was an interesting space. There was one. But still, e-commerce, retail, and direct-to-consumer in Australia is still very nascent. And it was back then as well. At that point in time, we were growing really quickly. And, you know, if you just kind of followed the same trajectory, we'd be at the moon in like nine months time, right? So it was just kind of like, well, how do you, <laughs> is, this, is this going to keep up? How do you think about it in the future? And so ultimately, you know, at, at that point in time, you know, we're about eight months into the, well, nine months into the business, it, we received some term sheets. Um, and, you know, I remember talking to to Craig at Airtree and they were like, hey, we really like you guys, but it's hard to kind of figure out what this is right now. And we too kind of felt, look, we we don't need the money, right? Um, we can continue growing through our own working capital. And so we decided that, you know, we're not going to raise now. Um, we said thank you to everyone. Uh, and so let's keep in touch. Craig, to his credit, uh, was probably the only VC that actually went, no problem, Ivan. And, uh, you know, some, some founders like it, some founders don't. I, I, I appreciate it. He actually gave me some advice. Like, he actually went, you know, you should work on 
these three or four things, I, I think these three or four areas, you know, you know, economics, a variety of other metrics are really key for helping you grow the business sustainably over the long term. And I took that as great free advice. We went away for about five, six months to go and work on the business. And we actually implemented that advice and we actually became a better business as a result of that. I remember I was sitting at, uh, you know, the local cafe uh, near the office. I emailed Craig and said, hey, Craig, I'm going to be in Sydney next week. We're going to open around. This is what we're doing. He got back within a couple of hours and said, great, let's meet up next week. And so I met him in Sydney the next week. We had a quick catch up, went through some numbers, got an update. By the time I was back at the airport that evening to fly back to Melbourne, he was like, hey, come back next week for our IC meeting. Um, flew back in the next week for the IC meeting. Um, and by the end of that week, we had gotten the term sheet from, from Ed. And I think it was just one of those things, right? They built conviction over time. And we, at the same time, built conviction over them. I think, you know, I, I grew a lot of respect for how the team thought about our business. And I felt these guys are smarter than I am, and I'm going to learn a lot out of it. So they're going to help us guide the business better. And that's kind of how we made our decision. You guys became more and more te- technologically focused. How much is your business driven by by tech and the use of things like first party data, for example, versus just being good, really good actual product design people and infrastructure? Like, how does the how does your business require those two very different skill sets? We definitely are very much a technology enabled business. Um, you know, I think technology really allows us to deliver on the guts of the customer proposition in a much more scalable way and a smarter sort of way. So, you know, one of the big pieces of technology that we built is we built our own order management software from the ground up, right? So everything around optimizing and automating the order management process for a customer, you know, being able to place that order, we optimize it to anywhere in the supply chain. If a customer changes their order, a customer who's ordered the same product moves to the front of the queue so that they get a faster lead time. They get full transparency of their product at any point in time. And then integrating that through to you know, our website so you see good, accurate ETAs at any point in time on the website, even before you purchase, uh, trying to replicate as much of a prime sort of experience where you know, you'll likely receive it by this day uh, and integrating it back into you know, our delivery systems. And the first genesis of that product uh, that we actually call Brossa ERP, which is Burke uh, for short in, in internally, um, was actually a Google Sheet. It was a heavily hacked Google Sheet where, you know, customers would call me, where's my order? And, you know, we would shout in the office, do not touch the sheet. But that built, I think, the logic behind what we were building. And so, you know, I think for us, we, we certainly see the first horizon of opportunity is around how do you use technology to become the rails and the infrastructure to building a digitally native, digital first retailing experience, right? Because for us, technology isn't about just having an e-commerce website. Uh, for us, technology is about building the actual infrastructure by which the entire business builds. And I think that's horizon one. And we've been focusing very much on the operational technology that helps us build that with some front-end technology. I think horizon number two, which you know we continue to invest into and see benefits from, is how do we solve some of these other areas of the purchasing experience for customers when it comes to home and living retail that is even before making the purchasing decision or getting it delivered, right? Stuff like when you come into a store, it's usually furniture is a dual decision maker purchase. It's driven by one particular decision maker a particular person in the household, but it's usually having to be verified or supported by another person. So how do you, you know, that usually means one person comes into the showroom, goes home, meets another person, they come back again on the weekend. 
They're all trying to get the same information together. They have to consolidate multiple points of research over two or three months. And for us, it's like, well, how do we use technology to simplify that, that process that they're going through even before they get to purchasing, right? And I think for us, we, we see a lot of possibility for innovation and simplification for customers um, and that sort of second horizon opportunity for us. And so that's how broadly we think about using technology in a, in a smarter way um, to, to kind of change the experience for customers. One of the great pain points buying furniture, and you've touched on it a couple of times, is just the delivery wait time. You, you call, Even pre-COVID, I think if you went to a furniture store, you'd be up for a eight, 12 week, if not longer, wait sometimes, like cars now. Uh, what, how do you guys compare sort of if someone orders from, from Broza today compared to ordering from Freedom today, how do you generally compare delivery times? Yeah, so, you know, for us, I think furniture is one of those things where customers may not want it tomorrow because it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a big product. There, there will be some customers who want it, but most customers, there there is a threshold for when they like it. Um, you know, we generally, 80% of our orders uh, would be anywhere between zero to seven weeks away for customers, right? And we've done that through a steady process of, you know, again, I guess using being a digital first sort of business, you're able to see a lot more leading indicators that tell you um, how to inform your demand planning. Uh, And one of the things that we built uh, from quite an early stage, and again, this is technology that a consumer may not see, but, you know, the the thing about e-commerce businesses is that they usually... The, the engine behind the growth is actually on the back end, right? All the operational supply chain systems. So we actually built an API call um, database that actually holds all of our product data. And it has everything from, you know, it's not just a red sofa. It's like this particular sofa and this particular fabric color and this particular style with these particular dimensions, with this particular finish, this particular wood. And so what actually that, that helps us actually to categorize and structure our data in a way where we can begin to see trends and we can see movements in customer demand uh, that helps us to, I guess, bring a new lens around how we think about demand planning and meeting customer sort of um, expectations around that. And so we're constantly playing the balancing game of going, hey, how quickly can we bring the product to customers, but also at the same time, make sure that we don't overexpose ourselves on inventory because it's not always as fast moving a good as let's say t-shirts or other apparel, but we think that there's a lot of innovation there. And I think we've, we've done a good job of raising the standards and also just improving the level of transparency for delivery times for customers. Their technology had become market leading and the guys had the data to back it up. The efficient browser machine was a far cry from when the guys spent eight hours unloading a single container. Three years after the company was founded, the business was able to raise a successful Series A funding round. Even better, highly regarded venture capital firm Airtree was the lead investor. With VC money now supporting their growth, the next challenge for Ivan and the team was a simple one, scale and professionalise. It was certainly a boost and it was the first, you know, professional money, uh, sophisticated money from outside. And I think it really helped... um, you know, professionalize a lot of things that we did internally, but we were still having to prove that we could scale the business and have, uh, I guess, sustainable sort of margins uh, and a sustainable go-to-market sort of strategy to be able to continue scaling the business out. And I think 
doing that that second round, you know, we were very fortunate um, in that I had built a really good relationship with Andrea Kowalski, who is now a title, but she was at Baylor at the time, and um, she led that round. And you know, she um, was a, a fan of the business from very early stage. You know, again, one of those things where investors invest in lines on dots. And we had been talking, I'd say, for maybe nine months, even before we did that round. And she would come into the store, look at our products. We would talk about product strategy. We would talk about go-to-market strategy. We talked about margins, working capital cycles. And, you know, that was a really big part of us really being challenged on, you know, sure, you've gotten to this sort of stage as a business now, but how are you going to be able to scale this and, you know, use capital to really fuel a fire as opposed to just continue figuring things out? And I think, um, you know, I think Baylador were, were a great partner and, and are a great partner. Uh, Andrea was obviously a really great sort of um, full partner for us to be able to grow that. And it really helped us to kind of move to that next sort of level, attract more talent uh, into the business and, yeah, kind of continue pursuing the sort of goals and rolling out the playbook. Not long after you did that round, Richard, who's obviously one of your, your co-founders, um, started a business called July, which has been a really successful luggage business, um, direct to consumer as well. How did how planned was that and how were you guys splitting responsibilities until then and, and since then obviously you, you're CEO of the business and was that always the case and how how did to the Richard moving on to 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 do July impact how you and, and David were operating yeah um you know I'd like to say that the three of us again made a very uh well structured decision on who should be CEO but I remember when uh when we raised around from Airtree, we thought to ourselves, well, somebody here should probably start leading uh, and calling shots. Because up until that point, you know, it was still very much a sort of democratic sort of, hey, we wanted everyone to be on board. But we realized that, you know, we probably needed somebody to start taking the reins and leading from the front because there was a role to be done there on top of the functional roles. And so, you know, we sat around a, a table and, and Dave and Richard were like, Ivan, I think you should do it. And I was kind of like, well, none the wiser. I went, okay, cool. I guess, I guess it would be me not knowing everything that it would involve. But it's probably been one of the greatest learning journeys in my life. And, and that's been a real privilege. Um, I think in terms of, you know, the role split up, it was always a case of I looked after uh, growth uh, and I looked after uh, elements of experience. David looked after technology and um, in-country operations. And Richard looked after sourcing product, right? And I think as we grew, it was a really great combination between the three of us. Um, but also there was a great opportunity for us to bring in talent, right? And so uh, as we brought on more and more talent that helped us to really structure and formalize and build greater capacity in our sourcing and product development and category management and merchandise planning in the business, all areas that Richard knew and appreciated how valuable they were. I think Richard also knew his skill set was really a starting things and moving things forward as opposed to doing um, the next sort of phase, which was a lot of optimizations and building team and building structure at the time. And so, you know, when Richard and I were, were chatting, it, it felt like a natural sort of progression to go, hey, we've got great people here. We don't want to stunt their growth. We want them to flourish and be able to contribute more. And so, you know, Richard, Richard came around to Dave and I and said, hey, look, I love the business. I want to stay involved and continues to be involved. Um, but I think, you know, that there are people in this business who are going to do these parts of the business better than I would, and we should let them grow. And so it just became a natural sort of evolution for us to go, great, let's figure out a way to transition uh, and 
you know, give him the opportunity to kind of find his next opportunity uh, while continuing to support the business. And then we, we developed talent internally as well. You guys got pretty well. And then in 2020, uh, a thing called COVID-19 happened, uh, which is pretty impactful for, for all sorts of businesses. But, but for direct-to-consumer online businesses, certainly had a great tailwind uh, over those couple of years. Uh, we'll look at sort of what co- happened with Kogan and, and Catch and some of these businesses. How much did COVID help you guys, especially in terms of customer acquisition and that sort of stuff versus potentially hurt in terms of cost base and just being more difficult to, to do stuff? You know, the way that we always thought about COVID and we continue to think about COVID is that it was just, it was the great acceleration. It was the great acceleration of underlying trends that were there. And we'd always believed that home and living e-commerce penetration was unusually low for a Western sort of economy. And if you looked at the US or UK, who were, you know, magnitudes of twice the, the, the amount of online penetration, Australia still had great sort of runway to grow. And I think with COVID, we saw that acceleration uh, happen in the space of 12 months. And it definitely helped where we had always been early on in conviction of going, we can build a direct-to-consumer brand online. We don't have to sell through marketplaces or sell third-party products. We can build our own brand and we can do it in a digital-first manner. And so when COVID happened and customers started adopting e-commerce uh, for furniture, it was certainly advantageous where the area that we've been investing from day one uh, became the primary you know, shop front for, for the industry. So I think it certainly helped with growth, customer acquisition, but I'd also say like it was a very dynamic sort of uh, environment at the time as, as different sort of announcements were being made around lockdowns or restrictions. You know, you would, you could see movement happening, conversion rates lifetime and, and you'd see that happen. But by far and large, I think, you know, it's been approving of the thesis of, you know, e-commerce and online penetration or a digital first sort of approach to retailing in home and furniture is the future. I think the way that we buy furniture right now, if you think about it largely through showrooms, is the same way our parents bought furniture back in the day, years ago. Uh, we are definitely not buying shoes and clothes the same way our parents did, right? And so believing that, you know, home and living furniture is going through that same revolution has been a, has been a good thing and COVID's accelerated that. But you are right. Like COVID, for all the good that it brought from customer demand, brought a lot of complexity with supply chain operations, Um working to make our team feel safe um, and continuing to, you know, deploy them in places that we knew that they could bring great value. And, you know, one of the great things where we have two physical retail stores, we've got stylists who are there. We quickly were able to redeploy them into places that allowed them to serve our customers digitally, provide add-on services, virtual services, probably one of the first that were on the market that were doing like FaceTime into a studio and showing you around and showing you the products your customers could get into the product. And that's the sort of thing, right? Necessity drives innovation, right? And so, um, you know, while we had a lot of challenges on the supply chain side, I think having invested into vertical integration where we've got our own people on the ground doing production management in China and India, it allowed us a lot more control than we otherwise would have. And sure, there was always going to be struggle and volatility, but I think the strategy of owning the supply chain and having control over it definitely put us in a better position than you know, going through third parties or being deprioritized because you didn't have control, um, you know, it allowed us to weather that storm a lot better than, you know, probably other peers. Like other leading e-commerce businesses, Rosa benefited from the tailwinds of COVID, which meant that most of their competitors weren't able to open to customers. 
and like almost every other e-commerce retailer, in 2022, sales have slowed as the world opened up. But nothing seems to be stopping Broza's growth, and earlier this year, the financial press speculated that Broza will potentially be listing on the ASX. There's always a, a overriding um, objective for everyone in the business to go uh, building great shareholder value. And, you know, I think while, you know, the IPO market looks like something that's interesting uh, in the future, I think it's also a lot about timing and also about the best opportunity for the business. I think, you know, right now we're happy where we are. We, we think that there's great growth prospects even as a private business. If there was an opportunity to do something in a public sphere, or, you know, there's also been a lot of movement and you would have seen that just consolidation wise in, in the market. You know, those are things that we would consider. But at the same time, I think we're just all very focused on the mission, which is that this is a $14 billion industry a year that is largely antiquated, untouched by technology and still, you know, pretty much guarded by a number of really big leading retailers, right? That, that control a large portion of the spend. Um, and there's a real opportunity to disrupt that using technology um, to build a, a different sort of retailer um, that's using digital as that whole. So, um, you know, at the moment, very much focused on doing that. And if opportunities come up in the future for us to, you know, I think bring value and return back to the shareholders uh, in a more immediate way, then then we definitely would look at that. How have you evolved your leadership style as the business has grown from three guys unpacking a container? in Rabin to, to 200 people globally, with I think in three or at least three different countries. How, how have you adapted and, and learned on the job, essentially? <laughs> that has been my, uh, th- that has been the, the biggest um, privilege, but also the biggest challenge of, of leading Brossa. I think, um, I think that the, the one thing that really stands out to me is, you know, the saying that if you want to go fast, go on your own, but if you want to go far, you should go with others. And, I've always been a team player, but I've realized more and more how important it has been to bring in great talent who go on the journey with you and are able to bring their skills and expertise further. And that has that has applied itself in many ways, not only attracting talent. I think that's something that I spend a lot of time thinking about. It's just like, how do I bring in great talent? And I have a little spreadsheet that I keep uh, myself and great people who I know who I want to work with in the future, they get added onto the spreadsheet and, and I try to, you know, slowly maneuver my way to get them to come work with me, but also just bringing around advisors and supporters of the business. So, you know, one of the things that I did recently, well, not recently, about two, three years ago was bring on coaching um, into as a, as a CEO coach for myself um, to really, you know, challenge uh, and, give experience around how to lead an organization of a certain size, how to manage a board, how to drive uh, vision, but do that structurally, how to get the right operating metrics in the business and keep everyone aligned, how to build great culture. Um, but I think the other thing on top of that are around recognizing its people, but you know, I think the biggest thing that a founder can do is have a real level of self-awareness, right? It's a real superpower. Um, and it's what allows us as founders to grow and develop, right? Uh, strengthening that sort of muscle of introspection, you know, reviewing past actions or past decisions and, and almost kind of playing devil's advocate with yourself. Um, I found to be a really, really valuable thing that I've done. Um, and I've just found that, you know, if I'm not willing to learn and grow as a leader, you can't expect the team to grow above the leader, right? The, the, the team can only kind of model the, the behaviors that they see in the leader. And so, you know, I've made it a mission for myself to go, 
I have to learn faster than anybody else uh, and I have to adopt that and, and a big part of that is about being self-aware. And that was Ivan Lim. And you've been listening to From Zero with me, Adam Schwab. Our producer is Ed Gooden. Our audio producer is Darcy Thompson. For more episodes, search From Zero Podcast with me, Adam Schwab.